Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 22nd, 2022, getting towards the end of the year. We expect years to have narratives of their own, and I think there has been a broad narrative in 2022 when it comes to technology um, and how there's been a broad, shall we call it, system error when it comes to big tech. Uh, the news today is that Sam Bankman-Fried, um, the, the Bernie Madoff of the crypto world, has been released on a $250, not $250, $250 million bond, which has been put up by his parents, who both teach at Stanford Law School, and uh, SBF, as he's known, will be coming back to live on the Stanford campus. It's the ultimate system error from Yahoo and Google to SBF. I wonder if there's a broader moral there. Um, my two guests on the show, Jeremy Weinstein and Rob Reich, are both professors at Stanford in the political science department, uh, and they are the co-authors coincidentally, of a, of a book that came out this year, System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. They have front rows, if you like, on the System Error at Stanford and in Silicon Valley, where Stanford is the heart. Uh, and they're both joining us today. Um, let's start uh, with you, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Weinstein, um, co-author, as I said, of System Error. What should we read into this Bankman-Fried narrative? It's so bizarre. Does it speak of a broader system error of big tech and particularly perhaps Silicon Valley and even Stanford's role in all of it? Well, Andrew, great, great to be back with you uh, and, and to be talking about how our perspective on these issues has evolved uh, over the last year or half. One of the things that is undoubtedly true about the current moment, and Sam Bankman-Fried is just one window into this, is the continued hero worship that governs so many aspects of the Silicon Valley innovation ecosystem. The bizarre stories about how Sam Bankman-Fried interacted with venture capitalists and investors at various stages were part of what built a mythology around the potential of crypto, the transformative potential of crypto that made it difficult to distinguish what was overhyped from what was really a kind of ideological project around decentralization, around the challenging of, of traditional approaches to currency, but which really was just cover for being in the news, um, uh, an old fashioned kind of financial scheme, whether it was due to uh, insufficient expertise or oversight or something far more intentional. And between Sam Bankman-Fried's stories and Elon Musk's story, a world in which we put the fate of society in the hands of a small number of technologists who are not accountable to anyone continues to be a recipe for significant and harmful social consequences. That is the system error that we put at the center of our book. Let's bring Rob in. Rob, uh, before we went live, uh, Jeremy pointed out you're both in the political science department, but Jeremy noted you're the philosopher. Uh, so from a, a, a political philosophy point of view, 
what does the the Bankman Freed and the Musk story in late 2022 tell us about the system error in Silicon Valley? Uh, well, from my point of view, the most significant thing to think about here is the way in which the hero worship of our grand technological innovators and disruptors um, is often coupled with amongst the technological set um, either an indifference to or worse a suspicion of democracy as a, a form of governance itself so if you take elon musk as an example here the very idea that he um, broadcast to the world in 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 choosing to bring twitter private and to buy the entire outfit was that twitter as the digital public square um, had to be rescued through his own interventions and from a philosophical point of view, the idea that a public square could or should be owned by a single individual is as close to a self-reputation as it comes. Um, um, if we're talking about a democratic uh, orientation to the world, uh, private ownership of the public square is undermining, self-undermining. And you know, one of the stories we tell in the System Error book is that uh, the grand technological futures that are prophesied by the, you know, the innovators that often come from our campus here, um, often just express an indifference to democracy at some of the most um, important points uh, in, in the development of technology. So uh, if, if it could be the case that beneficent technologists crafted our entire governance systems for us, as in certain respects, Sam Bankman-Fried tried to do with cryptocurrency. The view there is that that would be a better universe than if ordinary citizens through the slow and uninteresting work of democratic institutions themselves actually took responsibility for the future. And if you had to reduce, if I can just say one last thing here, Andrew, reduce the message of our book to a simple one, it would be that we are entering a new era in which leaving it to technologists alone to chart the technological future for us is now closing. And whether it's the EU awakening with the Digital Services Act or the United States with antitrust action, um, you can count um, on having a future in which there is just much greater scrutiny from journalists, from the fourth estate uh, in the media, to democratic institutions themselves in order to try to get the extraordinary benefits that technology does indeed provide, but without having to leave it to the hubristic orientation that the innovators themselves bring to the world and instead um, to democratic institutions to shape that future collectively on behalf of all of us. Let's bring Jeremy back in. Jeremy, you're a political scientist. You talk about the ideological project. Um, I, I'm curious in terms of democracy about how troubled you are by not just Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, but the way in which he seems to want to transform it into uh, an engine of referendum where everything can be voted on, which of course is not representative democracy, certainly the kind of democracy that exists in the United States. So as a, an ideological project, are you fearful of this cult of the referendum uh, of direct democracy, which the internet seems increasingly to being being used for or presented as. I mean, I guess, Andrew, I wouldn't I wouldn't equate 
Elon Musk with uh, an orientation towards broad public ownership over decision making. Like, let's separate the, the Twitter polls from the reality, which, as Rob described, is the taking of something that we might think of as an evolving public square and privately owning it, moving away from transparency around content moderation to what are really the whims of Elon Musk himself and a small group around him. And the core nervousness that we see, especially in the weeks following the silencing of journalists on the platform and the cutting off of the accounts of critics, is that ownership in single hands, whether it includes a poll or not, to seek the advice of whoever's paying attention on the platform um, is not a strategy of content moderation that is going to be seen as broadly socially acceptable going forward, whether it relates to the rise of racist, sexist, and misogynistic comment online, anti-Semitic tropes and hate. Um, people recognize the power of these platforms and the kind of that people have had with the beneficent technologists exercising this enormous control uh, and discretion when it comes to content moderation is increasingly unacceptable. Um, that's, I think, the story of Elon Musk, not a story of radical decentralization and popular ownership over content moderation. Of course, we saw yesterday, you know, the should he or should he not step down as CEO? People say yes. He says, okay, on my own time. Um, so this, this is silly. This is not serious. This is not an exercise in democracy. And, and in ways that are frustrating to me, it takes our attention away if we're concerned about the effective governance of technology, away from the fact that in the omnibus bill by the Senate and the House or will be over the course of the next day, we do not have the core pieces of legislation to rein in big tech that had bipartisan support and that which many were hoping to see included in the omnibus package, which means starting in January, we have to start again on issues of privacy, on issues of algorithmic bias, on issues of uh, antitrust and competition, uh, that our political system is failing to produce the policy steps in the United States that are central to address this problem. And we continue to look across the pond to Europe, uh, which continues to be the regulator of first resort. Yeah, and I want to talk about 2023 and get into some details on Section 230 and some of the other cases coming up at the Supreme Court. Let me bring um, Rob back in. Um, your book, Rob, has been quite influential. Three very prominent uh, Stanford academics, the two of you and Meryn Sahami, who teaches the most popular intro tech course at Stanford, basically arguing that something's gone seriously wrong. Have you seen in 2022 a shift in the zeitgeist? I mean, you were somewhat in a, in a minority at the beginning of the year. Do you think now that most people pretty much agree with what you're arguing in System M? I think it's true that, that there's uh, complete agreement, you know, in, in every corner of society that the digital revolution stimulated on campus here in large part and then brought to the world through the commercialization and broader ecosystem here in Silicon Valley has not been all upside. The kind of liberation technology hopes of the utopian dreamers of the 80s and 90s and the sense that, um, you know, a kind of creativity unleashing and freedom unlocking revolution would be the consequence of the internet and the companies that evolved. That's patently false. And 
we see now all the ways in which the secondary or third order consequences of, of the concentration of big tech companies has has been um, something quite challenging for both individuals and for and for democratic institutions. So that's not to deny the benefits that have come from from big tech, but it's also to point to the challenges and the problems. And so uh, I think this is a lesson everyone now understands. And Jeremy ticked off a list, but just to make sure like we're all on the same page about this, problems of algorithmic bias and, and discrimination that are amplified through algorithmic models, issues of privacy abuses through the ad tech business model, all kinds of issues with automation um, that is displacing workers and transforming the workplace into a kind of surveillance panopticon for anyone in the gig economy or in an ordinary factory job. And then, of course, the misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech that is on steroids on our social platforms. These are all the familiar problems that beset us today, not to mention the concentration of power of the companies themselves. And the task of, of confronting those problems is one that is not, um, not one that we should leave to the CEOs alone to try to um, solve, but rather something we should um, tackle collectively through our shared democratic institutions, which over the course of history, have indeed risen to tackle these kinds of problems in the past. And we're just entering an era in which we will negotiate in slow and familiar, unsexy ways, our democratic responses to the concentration of extraordinary corporate power, this time in the digital sphere. One of the things, let me bring Jeremy back in. One of the things I like about your book is you take some responsibility yourselves as professors at Stanford, uh, you recognize that maybe not you individually, but collectively you fell head over heels in love with technology, which was a mistake. And perhaps you weren't preparing your students morally sufficiently for the challenges ahead. You begin the book with an anecdote of a young man called Joshua Browder, who is the founder of uh, Do Not Pay, uh, an AI engine for... Um, enabling people to take on local government. Brad was actually on the show earlier this week talking about GPT. Um, are you, um, uh, Jeremy, are you seeing a shift in the types of kids now, especially freshmen coming to your classes? Are you still seeing the Joshua Browders of the world? sort of hardcore libertarians who believe that any challenge to authority is a good thing? Or is this beginning to filter down uh, to incoming students at Stanford? So I think it's unlikely to change in the near term the following reality, which is that um, Silicon Valley is going to continue to be a driver of extraordinary advances in the knowledge economy and, and, and kind of the growth potential of the United States. Um, you know, because of what advances in technology make possible. What that means is that Stanford is going to continue to attract really bright and capable technologists uh, who have strong entrepreneurial instincts. Nothing about that has changed. What I do hope is beginning to evolve is what Rob described, a recognition that with the good can potentially come bad and that the reality of exercising the superpowers of the 21st century responsibly, and those superpowers are the the skills in computer science and data science that power the innovations that we're always talking about, that exercising those superpowers responsibly is something that demands the consideration of values, uh, of normative positions, and, and 
de developing that kind of ethical muscle uh, to, to, to navigate value trade-offs. That has got to be a core part of our educational mission at Stanford. It's got to be a core part of the DNA of companies. And if you ask me one of the things that I reflect back on 2022 with some concern is that, you know, our book came out, uh, it was followed by the release of the Facebook papers. There was increasing public attention and concern about the ethical decision-making and the ethical muscle that exists inside of the major technology companies. Uh, and a year later, we don't see the legislation that we'd hoped for, but even more worrisome in a period of economic contraction, we see the very teams responsible for ethics and responsible decision-making being gutted as not first order priorities in these companies. So we got a long way to go, Andrew. Part of that is attracting students who want to take seriously their responsibility and the consequences that extend beyond the bottom line of their companies. But part of this is continuing to put pressure on those who are already the holders of concentrated power uh, and helping them and encouraging them and indeed regulating them in such a way that they begin to internalize some of the costs of, of their behavior driven by the profit motive. We haven't even mentioned Elizabeth Holmes who claimed to go to Stanford. I'm not sure if she did and certainly was first ranked crook and now is in jail. And does Elizabeth, does Elizabeth Holmes, that, that example, what, what's the, um, the parable there? Or is it just more of the same, Jeremy? So, you know, I think our view is that the case of Elizabeth Holmes is a, is a case of fraud. It's a case of criminal acts. And it doesn't take an ethics class at Stanford in computer science to help you understand <laughs> that misleading and defrauding your investors and breaking the law is the kind of behavior that isn't acceptable in society and will ultimately be punished. We don't think those are the interesting ethical questions. The interesting ethical questions are, are ones about trade-offs, ones where it's not about what's legal or not legal. It's a question about, you know, in a world in which social media platforms provide space for individuals to share their ideas with people all around the world, how do we balance that empowerment, that free speech agenda with other concerns that we might have, like the protection of people and their personal dignity from harassment or the ability to have a functioning democratic system with people having access to reliable information? Those are the really interesting value trade-offs. There's no right answer. With Elizabeth Holmes and seemingly with Sam Bankman-Fried, although we'll wait to see what the court ultimately decides. These are issues of fraud. Yeah, you don't need, I mean, you don't need a class. Time. Yeah, you don't need a class freshman year to help you figure out that breaking the law and lying to people who invest in your company is something that you shouldn't be doing. If I could hop in here, Andrew. I mean, yeah, are, um, go on, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I just want to build on, on Jeremy's point. So, you know, Jeremy pointed to, we've been pointing to the need for our democratic institutions to rise to the challenge. And at least in the US, the, the, the frustration with which um, those institutions have acted. But one of the main lessons of the book is that in an, in a, in an era in which the frontier of technology and science is, is racing ahead so quickly and chat GPT and these extraordinarily powerful text and image models that have just been um, um, so widely uh, disseminated in the past few months, um, we'll never see regulation catch up to the frontier. There's a predictable and longstanding lag between wise regulation and the frontier. So in that circumstance, there's all the more reason to, to rely upon 
what we call in the, in the book and what we do in our teaching on campus, um, rely upon the professional norms or the ideas that coordinate people as members of a professional class to ensure that they are stewarding the frontier of technology in a way that, that meets the needs of society more broadly. And let me be blunt and direct here about this. If you look at the other most important revolution of the 21st century, which I would, I would point to CRISPR and biotechnology and genetic editing as, as that, um, that rival revolution, you have a much longer professional orientation in that domain in biomedical research where the leading practitioners like Jennifer Doudna, the, the co-Nobel co, co Prize winner for her role in discovering this technology. Who teaches uh, at Berkeley. Who so. teaches at Berkeley, that's right. They've assumed um, a mantle of responsibility to steward the professional ethical response on behalf of the field for making sure the genetic revolution goes well. Um, by contrast, in artificial intelligence, um, we are stuck in a kind of teenager phase of professional development in which, you know, AI researchers and developers are sort of newly aware of their extraordinary powers in the world, like a 19-year-old would be, but their frontal cortex is massively underdeveloped and they fail to exhibit the social responsibility that's necessary for wielding those powers in a socially responsible way. Now, I'm not trying to just make fun of them there. I'm trying to point to the fact that computer science as a field only came into existence in the 1950s and 60s. And people who got computer science degrees only acquired any real power in the world at the early part of this century. So computer science and AI has had much less time to develop as a professional field, the kinds of wider norms of responsible developments, responsible action. And in an era in which democratic institutions will be behind, we need to lean into the rapid development of professional norms. And notice, these are not norms about Elizabeth Holmes defrauding people. These are not norms about Sam Bankman-Fried allegedly doing the same thing. It's about the role dis diffused in, throughout an entire tech company ecosystem so that all people feel responsible for this rather than just simply crowing about disruption and hoping for the best with some sort of beneficent technological view. There has to be a way of thinking responsibly about the social consequences of the extraordinary powerful technologies that are before us. Chat GPT and Joshua Browder exhibit just one other version. Yeah, of that. so let's talk specifically about Chat GPT and Joshua Browder. When he was on the show earlier this week, he 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 was optimistic that this would, so to speak, disintermediate lawyers, and everyone now could take fraudsters to court and wouldn't have to pay for lawyers. You, Jeremy, and uh, uh, sorry, Rob, you, you wrote a piece in The Guardian uh, in late November warning people about chat GDP in terms of morality and students using this technology to cheat. What would be your response to browder and do not pay in their leverage of chat GDP uh, GPT technology. He's already using yep. uh, the API to build a, uh, a a smart engine that will disintermediate lawyers. What would you say to Josh? Uh, well, um, it, I hope he has a, a kind of 
uh, vision for how it is that this untested technology that OpenAI, the company that developed itself, says shouldn't be trusted in its own output. It's in a, in a pilot phase of development. So that if you wanted to use Browder's, I haven't played with Browder's own use of the ChatGPT um, API, but let's assume that you wanted um, ChatGPT through Browder's um, deployment of it to represent you in court. You were gonna skip hiring a lawyer when you knew that 10% of the time or 25% of the time, the output of ChatGPT was gibberish and nonsense. Would you want to entrust your own legal representation to something that by the admission of the very technologists who developed the tool um, generates nonsense uh, and gibberish some significant fraction of the time. These generative AI models, unlike predictive AI, um, are not yet reliable and safe. And this is, you know, let, let's be broader minded about this. Google has developed similar technologies and one of the things that's been said over and over again about the release of ChatGPT is that it's a potential rival to Google's search dominance. Now that, that may be true over some longer time horizon, but would you want to release a product if you were Google that five, 10% or 20% of the time gave you simple nonsense as search results? Well, of course not. That would undermine your entire business model at the moment in which some degree of confident relevance and surfacing of, of, of relevant content through the Google search algorithm now does a good job. Um, so ChatGPT is not ready to disintermediate lawyers. Maybe it will be over the course of time. And Josh Browder is you know, happy, happy to let him play with it and work with it. But if you don't point to the problems, if you only simply say, look how we can get rid of human lawyers with a, with a machine that outputs a bunch of stuff and problems that the, 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 the headline there is telling, that's just your typical tech hubris um, with, without any sensibility about being responsible for the people who might read that headline, use his tool and find that what the tool did was complete nonsense on their behalf. Let's, uh, I, I don't wanna flog this one to death, Jeremy, but what, what happens when Jack, chat GPT is 99.9% accurate? Should we still be fearful? Is there still something morally to teach um, Josh Browder and the other entrepreneurs trying to disintermediate human labor? So we're nowhere near there yet, but it may be, but it may be, but it may be possible, maybe possible. And one of the reasons that, you know, this piece that you referenced in the guardian about the role of chat GPT in schools that we lift up that issue as we think about uh, the moral dimensions of this is in some sense, um, yes, new technologies can help us displace boring and repetitive human functions. But let's talk about what the function of writing is, right? And, and we experience this as faculty members who teach students every day, right? The ability to read, to integrate across different perspectives and viewpoints, to articulate and make claims and make claims with reference to evidence. These are fundamental aspects of uh, being a human being, engaging in a social dynamic, engaging in human relationships. And we have to think, I think, very hard about a world in which the function of developing views, articulating views, communicating views is replaced by technology. How then do we ensure 
the construction and development of human beings that are capable of reason and deliberation, of disagreement and forging compromise. The engagement that we do in communication and in writing is central to that. And we used education as the arena in which to think about these trade-offs because the rollout of a new technology without attention to its consequences in the educational domain is one that again reflects the hubris of the technologist, just assumes that society recalibrates, that everyone adjusts, and doesn't focus due attention on what might be lost in the process. And it's our responsibility to think about what might be lost in the process and to introduce these new technologies in ways that enable us to preserve what may be most important, but also most at risk. Wise words. Let's end on 2023. Chat GPT will be doing a lot of shows on it. It's certainly not going to be perfected by the end of 2023, if ever. Um, Rob, what would you like to see happen on, in 2023 in terms of reining in yeah. big tech? Is it mostly a, a DC issue now, the Supreme Court issues on Section 230 and so on? What are the, the key cases or issues that you want to see progress on next year? Uh, I got some thoughts about DC um, issues, but I want to put in the foreground um, the responsible norms that we've been talking about just the past few minutes. So if I had to make some 2024 predictions, there's extraordinary- 23, it's not 20. Oh, 2023, 24. Yeah. Well, okay. The You're next thinking like Silicon are, Valley now. Yeah, fair enough. I'm peering too far into the future. Um, the there's extraordinary investor interest in this new, you know, the field typically called generative AI. So Dolly, the image models, the mm. kind of ability AI, not to mention um, GPT and OpenAI and the other companies that are, are really pushing the frontier here. I don't think we're likely to see meaningful DC level legislation or regulation on these generative AI issues. To ensure that this is steered in a responsible way in the future, we're going to need to rely upon the, the companies themselves to make decisions on behalf of society that aren't just about profit motive. And here, you know, I guess the thing that I worry about is the fact that the company OpenAI, uh, as you know, the last chapter of our book chronicles, OpenAI began as a nonprofit company. Um, interested in AI safety. Over the course of time, um, it changed to a capped for-profit model because it needed extraordinary computing resources that it couldn't get through its philanthropic model. They've had these extraordinary successes, initially with GPT-2, GPT-3, we're going to see GPT-4 in the next year. And there were a lot of safeguards that OpenAI did uh, in order to try to limit um, access to the model as a whole. But in the space right now, um, stability AI has come along and there's a kind of open source orientation, which, you know, I'm going to be, again, provocative here, um, allowing anyone in the world to have access to these extraordinarily powerful models will indeed stimulate all kinds of experimentation. We'll learn about the capabilities of these models, perhaps more quickly than we would if they just were in the hands of a small number of people inside companies. But it will also give malicious users, adversarial users, the same opportunity to play with these models for malevolent and destabilizing purposes. For me, this is akin to saying, wouldn't it be great if we could open source uranium and plutonium and let everyone play at home with nuclear fission? Or yeah. imagine if we talked about smallpox. Right now, there's extraordinary regulations around 
the smallpox genome. We don't open source the smallpox genome to try to make it yeah. easier for people to play with bioweapons. <laughs> now, maybe these generative AI models aren't that powerful, but they certainly are very powerful in terms of misinformation. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And actually, one of the interesting things that came out of my conversation with uh, with Josh is that he still thinks that OpenAI is a nonprofit. Um, so clearly, he doesn't even understand OpenAI as a company. And I think Sam Altman, who is the guy behind a OpenAI, actually is just another version of Musk or Bankman-Fried or any of the others. So uh, I think Altman will become increasingly the the Musk of the 2020s. Jeremy, uh, any final thoughts in terms of, and, and it's well taken, uh, Rob, you're absolutely right. Uh, Jeremy, any final thoughts on what you want to see in 2023, maybe out of DC, maybe out of Stanford, maybe just out of the, the moral responsibility of startup entrepreneurs? So I think Rob is right to say that the real action is building this ethical muscle um, and this ethical practice in tech because tech is so far ahead of where government is ever going to be. That said, Washington has to show that it can do something, anything, to begin to help rebuild confidence that our democratic institutions can access the technical know-how they need to be players in this debate. Europe has shown time and time again that it can be a player in this debate. Washington has to get into the game and the failure to include the tech bills in the omnibus uh, this week is a huge failure and is going to further undermine people's confidence uh, that Washington can get its act together. So the challenge in the iteration is going to be for Senator Schumer and President Biden and whoever ends up uh, as the Speaker of the House uh, to recognize and build on the bipartisan support for reigning in big tech and to find a pathway forward to some pieces of legislation, even if they only go after the low-hanging fruit. They're going to have nothing to say about ChatGPT. That is too far ahead. We just got to start with privacy. We got to start with the one thing or, or start protecting kids online. Some of the low-hanging fruit that everyone knows there's broad agreement on and avoid the, the instinct that we see in Washington to default to the interests of the companies and their lobbyists. And we got to get these pieces of legislation passed because we got to rebuild confidence <clears throat> that our political institutions are relevant in this conversation.